Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the DW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and DW's campus. I'm here with Valerie Yerk, who is a reporter from our Metro section. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So this week you had a story about whether or not professors should be armed on campus. Yes, we did. A lot of that came out from the Parkland shooting in Florida that happened two weeks ago, um, just because the political rhetoric has been so expansive about it and people have really taken to social media, tried to come up with a lot of solutions to try to deter gun violence in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And there have been several school shootings already this year. Yes, I think one statistic is that in the last 12 weeks, there have been nine school shootings. And what did people have to say about this? Is this a popular opinion that more people should be armed on campus? A lot of professors that I talk to at the university don't support educators being armed in any way. They think that it'll hurt the, the classroom environment and it'll create, create a negative relationship between professors and students. Um, it'll create like unnecessary fear, like there's a gun in this vicinity and um, everyone knows and everyone's worried about, about it and like what kind of accidents that could create. But there was one professor at GW who's a law professor, his name is John Banzoff, and he came out saying, maybe this solution shouldn't just be brushed aside because it was supported by Donald Trump or the NRA. And maybe this is a viable solution that we need to consider in order to deter gun violence. And I'm thinking here you've got, by one estimate, over 100,000 school districts which are 10 or 20 or even 30 minutes away from the nearest armed responder, usually a sheriff's office or highway patrol or something like that. If nobody on that campus is armed, uh, these kids are literally just uh, ducks in a shooting gallery for 20 or 30 minutes. That, to me, is unthinkable. And so it's at least worth considering that if you have a few of them carrying concealed weapons, that number one, it will deter some of these guys from doing it. Number two, if they do do it, uh, there is a reasonable chance that they can be stopped because these people will shoot them. So that was kind of an anomaly, and it's something that kind of triggered this debate on campus or this article. But is this a feasible solution? Would a university typically go for arming people on campus? Have other universities in the past done something like this? Right now, the only state that I know that allows professors to be armed on campus is Texas. But other states have allowed their teachers to be armed on like high school settings. So I talked to some superintendents, I think in Texas and South Dakota, who do allow their teachers to be armed. And they said a lot of similar things. They are both school districts in rural areas. And they said that they want their teachers to be armed because response times for police officers take 20 to 30 minutes, which in such a time sensitive situation, like an active shooter on a campus, it's just it's just too unsafe for the students, whether whether or not that's true. Research, it's such a new solution that there's not a lot of research out there yet. It's still just kind of back and forth with like a lot of politicians and opinionated people. And they think 
hear that the pros would outweigh the cons, that they would be more likely to protect their students than having unintended consequences. Yeah. So in those settings, they do think that because they aren't in that like rural situation that it would help. I'm not sure if in an urban setting it would be more helpful. So we talked to um, Senior Associate Vice President for Safety and Security, Daryl Darnell, for this article. And he told us that the police response times for the UPD is around five to seven minutes, which is substantially shorter than 20 to 30 minutes. So in our case, I'm not sure if that would be considered a pro, which is what a lot of the professors that I talked to outside of John Banzoff were saying. What did Darnell say in terms of the timeline of these events and how they happen? Yeah, so Darnell cited um, the FBI research on this, and he said that it typically these events typically are over in five minutes, but most response times are between seven to eight minutes. Um, and GWPD usually takes five to seven minutes to respond. So there is kind of the, that gap between the response time and when the event is typically over. So that is kind of alarming. And I think that's why some people want to maybe use this as a solution to kind of like bridge that gap because they want that situation to be de-escalated as quickly as possible. And for those of us who don't know, are UPD officers armed at all? No, they are not. For the professors who were opposed to having guns in the classroom, what were they saying? What were the reasons behind not being armed? Yeah, so a lot of them were concerned about how the students would react and how that would change their relationship with students. So one professor that I talked to became very emotional about it because he talked about how he really values his students and his relationships. And um, I think he even called some of his students his like lifelong friends or his best friends. Not only is this a, an issue about like how can we keep people safe, but also how can we keep people feeling safe? Or a lot of professors have said that introducing guns will kind of change that relationship for the worse. Well, thanks for coming on this week, Valerie, and telling us about people's opinions on carrying guns in the classroom. Yeah, thanks for having me. have an update for us about a yet another departure from the administration. Yeah, so on Thursday last week, the university announced that Leo Chalupa, who was the vice president for research, so the office where the vice president of research is usually what we think of when we think of um, any administrator activity regarding research, and so uh, the university did announce that he will be leaving. He will be taking a sabbatical following this, um, but he won't officially leave until July 1st. Essentially, every leadership position in the areas that University President Thomas LeBlanc has said that he wanted to focus on now is going to have a new leader. He's created a new office that will be Office of Enrollment and the Student Experience, which is an area that he said he wanted to focus on, and Lori Kohler will be leading that. He replaced Lou Katz with Mark Diaz, who he worked with previously. He had said that he wanted to reevaluate kind of the university's finances, especially with regards to the hospital. He replaced the vice president of development and alumni relations, and he said he wanted to reevaluate alumni giving at the university. And one of the final things that he said he wanted to reevaluate was research. And now he has the opportunity to fill this position with somebody of his choosing. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So this is something, too, that we've heard from a lot of faculty and even in past stories, we've heard from experts as well, that when a new university president comes on, there is generally going to be a lot of turnover because they are going to want to sort of pursue a specific vision and they are going to want, you know, faculty, staff, administrators, all who also follow in line with that same plan and goal. So can you tell me a little bit more about what professors kind of saw this as? Like what, how did they think that this was going to affect research here? Some faculty said that this is going to be a really great opportunity to reevaluate research, like you said, and that's probably what i University President Thomas LeBlanc hopes to do here. But also a lot of faculty said that this is a good chance for maybe OVPR to play a different role at the university. Some faculty said that they have slightly too much power and that in order to really emphasize, you know, individual schools research, that the individual schools themselves should really have more control and more freedom over acquiring grants, also determining what research projects should get funded, and also allowing for them to really jump through less hoops to get what they want. And that's something they've felt through OVPR, that it's more of a bureaucracy and that that can be really hard to navigate. Tell me more about Chalupa himself. Like, what kind of was his impact during his time here? He was here for a while. He was here for about nine years, and he really worked to raise the research profile of GW. So before, uh, when you uh, talked to faculty about what it was like here before Chalupa, you know, we weren't really considered much of a research institution. I know that had been a priority of, say, like, uh, President Trachtenberg a little bit, but more President Knapp, and then especially now with President LeBlanc. Um, so he really worked to both raise national rankings, also reeling in more funding for faculty, especially more recently. He's really been pushing corporate funding because there has been a decline in grants, so helping faculty in that way. He's also worked to improve the undergraduate research experience, so that has been a more recent goal of his. And then also we'll see this spring that they are developing an undergraduate research journal. And he also really worked to develop areas of research that he had felt had previously been neglected. So one area was autism, and since then he has worked to develop GW's Autism Institute. Also, uh, different areas of science policy, sustainability. He has also helped develop other institutes, so the Computational Biology Institute, which is led by Professor Keith Crandall. And in particular, that institute, too, is uh, has been instrumental in engaging undergraduate students in research. Does the university have any kind of deadline for getting a new person into this position? Well, hopefully they have someone by July 1st, which is when he will officially be leaving, but they don't have any tentative deadlines or set dates for when they're going to be hiring someone new. And what are faculty looking for in this new person? Faculty are really hoping that whoever comes in definitely takes a step back and just listens to what faculty want, any concerns that they might have. Also, this uh, spring they're launching a faculty research task force, so that will be kind of just to reevaluate things going on with research and an OVPR. So they're hoping that this new person will also, you know, come on to this task force and really listen to what faculty have to say, but also just use that as something that can help them kind of 
work their way in and really understand the research culture here and then start to make improvements from there. So they don't really want anyone to come in and say like, hey, this is what I want to do and I'm going to start implementing changes right away. That's not what they want to see. They've seen that in the past and it hasn't worked for them. So they really want someone to take into consideration all the concerns, really understand research on a department by department basis and go from there. Are there any specific concerns about humanities research? I know that in the past, humanities professors said they've kind of been overlooked for more STEM areas, and I just wondered how they were kind of going to be impacted by this. Yeah, so that's something that has been a major concern over the past few years and something that faculty have also complained about. It's just that, uh, you know, areas like STEM, science, engineering have really been prioritized more than, say, the arts, the humanities. And this is also something that they're hoping to work on within the faculty task force, is making sure that those areas are not seen as less scholarly or less research worthy or less worthy of getting grants just because, you know, as it stands, they don't bring in as much money and faculty really want to see a change in that even if a project doesn't bring in as much money it shouldn't be overlooked and you've met with chalupa several times this year to talk about his goals and priorities are they have they been reflective overall of what he's achieved during his time here yeah so i mean one of the major things that we discussed and this was uh, in the fall was his emphasis on undergraduate research and So, I mean, as you can see, like with the undergraduate research journal coming out, this is something that he's definitely prioritized this academic year. And additionally, I learned last time we spoke that he actually wrote a letter to the editor to the Hatchet um, about undergraduate research. And so he presented us with that. And that was a very interesting read to see more than 10 years ago to now that that has been a priority for him. Thanks for coming on and talking about this this week, Leah. Every time an administrator leaves, it's always important to kind of see what they've left behind and what faculty we're looking for in the future. Yeah, and I'll make sure to keep you updated if they find anyone to fill this position. So I think it's a fact of life as a GW student that you will see some Canada Goose jackets during the winter months. Isn't that right, Liz? Yes, it's definitely true. And this one student, Allie Oxner, started a company based on that fact. So she started making stickers that were a parody of the Canada Goose logo and then now has been expanding them to do parodies of other companies. What inspired her to take this kind of artistic move on such a prevalent thing on campus? The important thing to know about her is that she's very artistic and she's actually known to be sitting in class and she'll pull out a palette of watercolors and start painting her notes. So this all started in an SMPA class, Principles of Public Relations, where they were talking about PR nightmares and they were talking about an example where PETA had condemned these Canada Goose jackets and were saying how horrible they were and they were talking about the response that Canada Goose used. And so... Do you know what the reactions were of the students who may have been wearing Canada Goose at that very moment? Yeah, so she said as they were having this conversation, she was kind of zoning out, looking around the room, and noticed that there was a girl in front of her in class who was actually wearing one of the jackets. And thinking about that and thinking about the conversation they were having, she saw an opportunity to use this and then create these stickers that are a parody of the logo that you see on all of the jackets and to raise money for different charities. So the stickers are pretty much identical to the patches you'd find on the Canada Goose jackets, except the text reads status patch bougie program. 
So it seems a little targeted for people who may be wearing these. What is kind of her intention, you think? Her intention with these are just to draw attention to the fact that, like, these jackets are not cheap. They're very expensive. They start at, like, $900 for a jacket. And that was kind of her sentiment here is that, like, I think the words that she used were, you vote with your money. And so in supporting companies like this, you're supporting, like, animal cruelty and things like that. Mm. And, like, this isn't the first time that Canada Goose has been featured in a way that is satirical and trying to play on the status symbol that the student body keeps perpetuating. Right. So. Well, there's the GW Geese Instagram account. Ah, uh, yes. It's How long has that been running, you think? It's been a few years. So last year, I actually interviewed the anonymous student who runs the account for the Hatchet's Best of Northwest Guide. Mm. And they started it, I believe they started it like last January. So on the account, they take pictures of students who are wearing Canada Goose jackets around campus. And like, they make sure to crop out the heads so that the photos are still anonymous. And it's not like specific people around campus, but you see like their body. And then they have these satirical captions that they have underneath them that are like poking fun at how expensive these are. And Mm. like, they're like fake quotes about what the people in the jackets are saying. So Liz, We are both non-Canada Goose owners. Right. But I have heard that you had the privilege of trying one on. Yes. So my roommate owns a Canada Goose jacket, and I have, in fact, tried it on. (laughs) Um, I will say, being from Maine, I don't think they're necessary, although I was very toasty. (laughs) Oh, my God. If it's not necessary in Maine, where is it necessary? Certainly not in D.C. Well, that's what I'm saying is I'm from Maine, which is one of the coldest states in the U.S. And like there is no reason why if I have never if I've survived all of these winters without a Canada Goose jacket, then like other people should be able to get around in D.C. without one. But you felt so rich, didn't you? I just felt very sweaty, to be honest. Like it was very hot. Mm. So this GW student isn't just trying to make a kind of statement about class and stuff like that. She's also donating the proceeds to a good cause, right? Yeah. So all of the proceeds from this Canada Goose sticker are going to fund her trip where over spring break, she's going to be working with Nomas Muertes at the U.S. border between Arizona and Mexico to do um, different volunteer work while she's there. And she started selling these stickers about a week ago, like a little over a week ago. And so far, she's raised $250. That's pretty impressive for just a... And she's just selling them through her own Instagram account. So she doesn't have a website or she's not selling them through any outside vendors. It's just like through word of mouth that they're spreading. And she said that most of the sales that she's done so far are like through friends and like other GW students. But she has gotten messages from people who are college students in like Massachusetts or New York who have reached out to her and want to buy these stickers as well. What else has she been working on? I know that she... She can't just be making stickers about Canada Goose. She's got to be tackling other issues, right? right? So the Canada Goose sticker was the first one, but now she's also made one that's a parody of the NRA logo. And that sticker says, still dying 2018, no real action by the USA on top of it, instead of where it typically says the National Rifle Association. So she's selling those as well. And the proceeds for those are going to Everytown for Gun Safety, which is an organization that advocates for gun control and against gun violence. Well, Matt, thanks for talking to me about this new company. Anytime, Liz. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Leah Potter and Meredith Roten and featuring culture editors Liz Preventure and Matt Dines. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, managing editor Tyler Loveless, and assistant copy editor Emma Tyrell. And music was produced by Olk Studios. Special thanks to Valerie Yerk for joining us. We'll see you after spring break.